Who or what is God? Fashioned from the earth and molded in his image, the original pair set about cultivating the land. Their work paved the way for their progeny, who spread out over the world, adding knowledge and diversity to the human experience. Time went on, and our quest for meaning led us to build vast empires, cure innumerable diseases, and construct great monuments of human ingenuity. But now we sit looking up to the stars, too afraid to look down and see the collapse in everything that we've built. Stuck between what is and what could be, we ask ourselves, are we alone here? Or is there someone or something more? My name is Wasi Anjum, and you're listening to Islam Uncovered, a podcast series that combines religious imagination with philosophical reasoning in a bid to illuminate the hidden but all too real aspects of Islam and monotheistic religions beyond. As our political and religious leaders invoke the name of God to silence critique and maintain their dogma, we offer an alternative approach and shed light on the stories and struggles lost along the way. On this episode, I'm joined by Will Patterson as we try and chart out a path depicting the Islamic nature of God what it means to worship, and why having this conversation is so important. I think it's important to have this discussion, no matter where you are, religiously, culturally, to understand how how we ask that question, what what do we consider God? Even if I'm coming from a non-religious point of view, what do people around me consider God? If you are one human being, cross-sectionally examining your life in the context of humanity as a whole, then it's very easy to think that you have either faced predominant suffering or predominant happiness because you are, at the end of the day, just one data point in a sample of seven billion today and collectively billions more. It's an important conversation to say, you know, are there there different tests for people with different circumstances? Well, it's also very important to look at, like I said, regardless of your religion, are we going to hold people that come from very difficult circumstances to the same test standards? Because that inherently sets up an, an imbalance. I'm not a philosopher. I'm barely an academic these days, especially. But I firmly disagree with both those sentences, <laughs> both those statements, just so you know. <laughs> but I don't think the purpose of this specific conversation is to prove anything. Yeah. It's mostly just to take what we know and try and apply some level of intuitive reasoning to it and see what we come up with at the end of that. There's such a wide multitude of human knowledge addressing whether or not there is a God, what that God could be like if they're real, etc., etc. Those are all great conversations that happen within their own sphere. But this one does presuppose 
from the eyes of a worshiper within this specific strain of religious mm-hmm. thought that God is real. But the question would be what gives him or it that sense of realness to the believer. And if they were looking for a way to explain that, then it would start with asking these very basic questions about what the attributes of that God are. One of the central pillars of faith in Islam is that you accept God as one. Now, if you take a casual look across the Muslim world today, the mere fact of even questioning God's existence is borderline sacrilegious. The insinuation that it could be more than one, or even asking the question why only one, is borderline sacrilegious. So I'm pretty sure that even by having this conversation right now, we're not like religiously or spiritually sacrilegious, but we are probably condemned in the eyes of a lot of the hardline extremist conservative people who like to claim they have some level of monopoly over religious truth if not all of it, according to them, at least. I, I think like what you were talking about, how we are how we are dipping into that territory of the discussion of it um, can be condemned by some individuals. But I, I would say I think it's important to have this discussion, no matter where you are, religiously, culturally, to understand how how we ask that question, what, what do we consider God? Even if I'm coming from a non-religious point of view, what do people around me consider God? And is it something that transcends? Um, I think you have a lot of people that that would argue it transcends a lot of different levels. Yeah, that, that's where I'd say I am on the on this discussion. I, I want I want to defend have the <laughs> inherent nature of, of having it and defend the importance of asking this question even from an outsider perspective. I guess it's a good signpost that what do people around you consider? God. I think that that question in itself could be a bit problematic because it naturally begs this other question. Okay, does does God exist because you believe in it or does God exist regardless of your belief in him? Now, from an Islamic perspective, it's definitely the latter. There's various mentions in the scripture that even though God wants you to worship, he is not bound by it. He does not receive any sustenance from it and he theoretically outlives it. So you're not really needed. Your presence, your worship, your faith is not really needed. It is rewarded. And I guess that makes it more about what God's intention was behind creating you, which I think we'll get into later. But on the basic question of whether or not God is real, it's a good thing to point out that God is treated by people as being real because of the physical acts of worship that they ascribe to it. I I, I was I would say yeah the the concept of like well is <laughs> it becomes a moot point mm. when places of worship are already built. It, yes, the concept is regardless of where you stand in mm-hmm. your your belief in the physical world. Uh, the concept is real. the The act of worshiping it is real. Is somebody who may even be outside of that religion in a way that still makes mm-hmm. that deity real. <laughs> right. Yeah, so for people who are within it, or for people who are even at the border, if we can first accept that it is real, and we're not really arguing that, I think the first question I would ask is what makes something worthy of worship? And really to answer even that question, you need to be very clear on what worship itself as an activity is. Take a cross-section of society 
regardless of time, place, and culture, you'll see that people are interested in a wide variety of things. Celebrities, the hot goss, political leaders, emotional leaders, what have you, right? I think the idea that people ascribe value to other people, particularly those whose ideas and beliefs chime with their own, is something that's existed since the dawn of man, probably, but more so now, because, you know, social media, online stuff, you can see it happen in a way that you never could previously. But is that worship? I think a lot of people would say no. I think a lot of people... I don't know. I, 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 I hear that. I think it's a very traditional, I think I think it's a very traditional conservative way to look at something such as sharing something online or, or something of that nature and saying, well, this isn't real worship. The nature of the worship has changed so dramatically that I think, I, I, I sorry, I, I'm getting a little off track because I, I did want to circle back to um, you talking about why do people worship mm-hmm. uh, as well. And I, But I think it goes hand in hand, kind of what we're talking about, how, how it changes. And I, I think people worship for for a variety of reasons. I think when you talk to some people, for some people it's almost like meditation. It's a way to clear their mind while also strengthening their relationship with God. For other people, I think it's part of a, it's a grounding ritual mm-hmm. um, in in their day or, or their week or, or how often they do it. And then for, for some people, I think it is just, I think it's more of a chore. I think it's, it's them thinking, look, I have a busy schedule, but I have to do this because mm-hmm. it's the right thing to do. I think the nature of why people worship is so diverse that when you look at what is worship, you have people arguing, well, that doesn't qualify or, you know, that you're not worshiping the right way. I think completely glosses over the fact that people are worshiping for entirely different reasons. Yeah, I can agree that the idea of the practice of worship and the idea of worship are so intertwined now in the physical world that you can't really have a conversation of one without also talking about the other. And at the same time, who gets to be the person to be like, oh, sorry, that's not worship. This is worship, right? Um, But I think the problem with that approach is that that very much relies on physical acts of worship rather than beliefs. So you go to a priest and you share a post on social media. I'm pretty sure the priest would say that that's not worship, but that's very much because they're treating the physical act of having shared something online as being a disqualifier. If you go to the same priest with the idea that, oh, um, I want to talk to this invisible thing in somewhere in the sky, I think they'd be more inclined to listen, not simply because it's closer to their idea of what the belief of God is, but also just as a physical practice of going to a quote-unquote place of worship and mm-hmm approaching a man of the cloth and laying those troubles down, right? So I think if we first want to talk about whether or not something qualifies as a practice of worship, you you first need to be clear on what constitutes worship. So to try and divide those two things just for now, for the sake of argument, I'd say perhaps worship would be, or Maybe we can't set a very specific limit on it, but we could perhaps boil it down to certain determining factors. So the more of those factors you have, you're probably engaged in worship, and the less you have, the less likely uh, that it's worship. So maybe one of those factors ought to be that it's something external. It's not you. It's something that exists beyond your personage, outside the boundary of you as a person. Now, this could still be a whole host of things. This could be watering a plant because technically it's (laughs) something else. But 
perhaps an additional thing to add on would be that it needs to hold some level if not an immense level of power hmm. whether that's physical or not is a separate question but even for people who have or who make up the cult like followings of any celebrity or public figure correct me if i'm wrong the basis for that cult level of appreciation comes from the idea that this person this thing has immense value to them and has is providing something that nobody else can that can be any any number of things i don't know it can be entertainment it can be a sense that this is important it can be whatever else under the sun but it is essentially something that nobody else can provide otherwise what's separating this particular celebrity from or public figure from any other one in the eyes of the viewer so i think yeah. i think this opens kind of the gates to when you have a religion where where a big part of it is the fact that other people are also part of that religion this is going to sound this is a little bit of an assertion this i i don't think this is grounded in any real good theory or rhetoric Much but like is, all of this <laughs> but is there is there not some need if it is to maintain not, not that religion has to be uniform, but if it is to be the same religion, there has to be some discussion or some critiquing on, on what qualifies as worship before you end up with uh, just a pool of people that are, I would say, vaguely spiritual. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? So, it, it, cause, yeah, I mean, that's that's really what we're trying to do yeah, here, right? Have that discussion. Where, where is the point uh-huh. that you can critique somebody else's worship, especially in your own religion? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, really only. I don't think you should look over in another religion and go, that's not, yeah, you know, that's not yeah, worship. Definitely. But when you look at your own community and you see somebody do something and you, and you think to yourself, well, does that... <laughs> Does that really qualify as worship? We're calling ourselves the same thing. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I think if I think I'm okay with that being it, something we yeah. accept as worship. In- interesting fact that is already a long-standing issue within oh. uh, the Islamic world, at least perhaps maybe in other religions too. But yeah, there's a lot of finger pointing, uh, and particularly when it comes to cultural festivals, not necessarily Ooh. religious ones, but. I don't know. You take the example of Eid, which comes directly after the month of fasting, i.e. Ramadan. So that day is meant to be a celebration of the 30 days or 29 days, whatever, that you've spent of fasting. But the, the specific physical practices that that celebration takes place are actually quite different depending on which geographic or cultural region you're looking at. Mm-hmm. I, I think kind of, kind of on this note... A thought that occurs to me, especially when examining uh, religions, and, and please forgive, I will continuously mention Christianity. <laughs> just ahead. I'm from America. You know how it is. <laughs> but even I, I see it. I mean, what you're talking about, how is it, uh, these celebrations vary uh, from region to region, uh, culture to culture. And I think I think you see that with any widespread monotheistic religion. And, and what comes to my mind is kind of the reminder that who could, sets the tone of these uh, celebrations is largely not your your very devout. I don't I don't think that's necessarily true. I think it is. I think it's your your very normal uh your very average worshipper just mm-hmm. because that's where most people fall. Yeah. And most people that are actually doing these ceremonies. So when we when we look between all these and go, well people are arguing over over what really matters and how the way you're really supposed to do it. 
I think the reason that that uniformity will never exist is because the average person isn't devout enough to probably argue with somebody from another culture. They're just like, I want to do the, the celebration in the way that I believe qualifies and is comfortable in my cultural context. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as, as physical practices, nobody has undeniable claim to a superior slash correct version, right? I think that's a misleading tone. And I I don't want to call it apathy, but I would just say that that group that sets the tone is just never going to lend an ear to somebody that Mm -hmm. is, that is, you know, uh, beating their chest about how devout they are. I think they'll just be more comfortable with how they've set the tone and how their community has set the tone. Agreed. Yeah. That's, again, I mean, that's a very you know, common consequence of Mm -hmm. the physical practicing and then the differences that result in it. But if we could find one common thread between all of these people who practice in their own ways, sure, but practice nonetheless, and who hold the belief that they are worshiping when they practice, I think that common thread would be this idea that it is something that exists beyond them, and it is something that holds some level of, uh, well, if not an absolute level of power and influence that they don't find anywhere else. Because if it were not exclusive, if those attributes were not exclusive, then those worshippers would either be okay with worshipping many other things, quote-unquote, mm-hmm. worshipping many other things, or they would not worship at all, knowing that there's something else that is also equally, if not greater, in value. So the physical practices that they do, wide varied all across the board, but each of them carries that level of belief within in themselves that they are doing the right thing. And that is reliant on what the end goal of that worship mm-hmm. to them is, which is, oh, this invisible thing at the end of the tunnel that somehow commands everything that I see, holds this immense value, this immense power, yada, yada, yada. It needs to be that level of final and absolute if we are to say that it's worthy of worship. And yeah, that's that's what I would say is that common thread. So to reduce everything down into a bite-size conversation, it would be that something is worthy of worship to these believers or to a general person interested in worship if it holds an immense sense of power, one that is not easily, at least easily, duplicatable anywhere else. We, We could realistically close the lid on what makes something worthy of worship unless we have more to add there. no no i think i think we're good all right so i mean we've briefly talked about how it's this grand sense of power and influence but i don't think that explanation itself is grounded enough or examined enough to be conclusive so a question on what the nature of that divine power is is probably relevant to ask There are an innumerable amount of examples, both historically recorded and perhaps otherwise, that there are physical acts of nature, disasters, but also reliefs. There are acts of men, good and bad, big and small. All of these things, to some degree, from the religious perspective, are tied to the power of God. Sometimes it's an active power, 
splitting seas, causing earthquakes, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it's passive. The idea of God in their head or the idea that somebody was about to do something wrong but then suddenly realized, had a moment of, of epiphany, etc., etc. To some degree, I think if you're if you just examine this in a bubble, it does conflict with the idea of free will. That is also something that has been promised to humans within Islam. But what I like to think of it is is that, and this is leaning a bit into science and the multiverse, but I think that there is an infinite number of parallel realities, each of which with their own decisions and whatnot, that God is probably aware of because when Islam says that God knows everything and everything that has happened and everything that will happen, it very strongly conflicts with the idea of free will and the inherent unpredictability of that. I think there is those parallel realities all with their own stuff playing out that God is aware of. But which actions that we take, like those critical moments of choice that we have that will lead us down any one of those infinite number of realities. I think that choice is up to us. The ability and the willingness to make each of those choices is up to us. And then depending on which one you make, certain things play out that are already known. Or the other one just being that all of these are, you know, natural consequences, like random acts of nature. No control, no, no will behind them. <laughs> Very funny. <laughs> I would say we're dipping into that that territory that is the the forbidden one. I'm I'm okay with being there. But how do you how do you define it? I this is a difficult conversation to have and weigh in on without disclosing where you are yourself uh, religiously. I, I almost feel like and you know so I I'm a, I'm a non-religious person. And to me, I, I look at the natural world, and I, and for me, that that's all it is. But I understand that for religious individuals, that is not always how it is. I I would say I see historically, you know, acts of God. We literally call them acts of God as the natural world behaving in a way that I think we couldn't understand. I you know how whenever mm-hmm. something, whenever a natural disaster happens, you can always find people saying that you coincided with this bad thing that was happening. Mm-hmm. I think bad things are just always happening, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, that's a fair point. So what I feel like I'm I'm witnessing, once again, you know, don't cite me, of course, but I feel like there there is a large moving away of um, saying that these natural acts are connected to a higher power just in the sense of, hell, we typically can just figure it out now. Or... You know, if an earthquake hits a country and, they, and people are able to say, oh, it's because it's because this was happening. But, well, how do we explain the fact that the aftershocks also destroyed a village that was just completely disconnected from that social? You know what I mean? The, the, we're just in such an interconnected world now. We have such an explanation. Um, I think belief of, of God is something that wields this uh, power of the natural world. Um, I think people that lean on that a lot, I think they, they only have a few paths I could follow. One of them is that they keep getting met with kind of the crushing frustration of going, but this this isn't really correlating with what I believe, mm-hmm. or the option of they just ignore it, which is why I think, once again, people are divorcing themselves from that idea because I think it will be difficult to maintain your belief if you're looking for physical signs in a world where we have just a lot of very natural explanations. 
so yeah, I, I, w- I would say on the on the physical nature um, of God, I would say that that's that's kind of that's kind of how I see the trajectory mm-hmm. going. Once again, this is just all speculation. <laughs> Who knows? This is actually a good segue into the third and I hope final question, <laughs> um, which is what is the nature of the will behind all of this? You know, power and whatnot. I think there's a natural tendency if not a very intentionally constructed tendency for people to think that if there is a god then why would he wish us harm oh the old the old charles darwin quote Ooh, yeah no very, it's, yeah, that's like, a good one that's a good one it's it's a good well i think it's a very succinctly describes um th- just to clarify uh what it basically says is he does not even necessarily say he's non-religious in it. The quote basically says he cannot believe that there is a benevolent and omnipotent uh, higher power that allows there to be such suffering in the natural world. And what and the thing he specifically cites is this like wasp that uh, that kills. It's just a horrific thing. It's a horrific thing he studied a wasp <laughs> that like uh, lays its eggs inside of something and and it kills them. It's horrific. You can look it up if you want. Um, I look at that as he he was kind of in that era, though, where we're reaching that tipping point. People are examining the natural world and going, oh, no, uh, maybe maybe this isn't aligning with, with my beliefs in a way. And seeing that there, there needed to be some evolution for themselves personally. I think this idea of examining God through the lens of human-defined moral suffering slash reward needs to be re-examined for this conversation to have merit. Theoretically, if this god is real and if they have this absolute level of power and everything, then they must also theoretically exist beyond these moral contraptions that we've created. Which means that the ways in which this god goes about measuring the idea of happiness and of suffering might be entirely different from the ways human goes about it. Now, to play devil's advocate, there probably is some level of reason for us to think the way that we do because of the ways in which all of our holy books and scriptures have talked about suffering and reward. Suffering has usually been visited by these themes of natural disasters and the idea, oh, God could do this if you're bad. He could flip a mountain on your little town (laughs) um, if you misbehave. But at the same time, if you're a devout and strong believer, then you can walk through fire and be unscathed. So there is a good level of religiously defined rationale for believing that God probably has that same understanding of suffering and happiness as humans do. But I think the question still remains as to whether or not he values it the same way as we do. If you swing too far in the direction of happiness, where everybody is getting everything that they want, and there is no social or really any sort of cost to any action that any person takes, isn't that technically heaven, then? A place where all of your desires and everything is met where there is absolutely no downside to anything that is being done. And if that's the case, then why do we even exist at all in this place? To supplement a bit of that, this place is meant to be a test. From an Islamic perspective, but I imagine also from a larger monotheistic perspective, different people have different layers of tests and how well you do on them will grant you that door to salvation. But it means that there needs to be a cost associated to the actions that happen here, good and bad. 
And that's one way of thinking about it. And if all the actions were purely bad, then there would be no possibility to even have any sort of test because everybody would be wallowing in some level of misery, if not downright just dead. And again, <laughs> not really an existence that is operative word, existing. So I think that balance is something that God probably tries and maintains in an effort to remind us that there is something that comes after this mm-hmm. and also to make sure that we don't get too complacent in either one direction. This can have the unintended, perhaps even testing consequence of people saying, oh, we'll just you know divorce ourselves from this reality and aim for the one that comes after. So whatever happens here, well, yeah. Um, and yeah, then we then we go around in circles. Yeah. If you are one human being cross-sectionally examining your life in the context of humanity as a mm-hmm. whole, then it's very easy to think that you have either faced predominant suffering or predominant happiness because you are, at the end of the day, just one data point in a sample of 7 billion today and collectively billions more. Suffering is such a heavy word, too, not oh, not yeah. to put that under. It, it is the word we always use, though. Mm-hmm. But it, I think another way sort of to look at it is just earning your keep, which, I mean, could make me dip into labor theory, but nobody needs that. God is an economist. <laughs> of course, you know, I'm always going to switch on that Marxist lens, even when I don't want it. Um, but I think that's an argument that is an argument. Um, it's a theory that is, is sometimes glossed over in terms of people you know people go well why can't things be like this why why can't it be like this um is it not just in suffering is always the word oh my gosh we, we have to do all this to survive is it not just putting the work into the reality that you're given for a in a way you know it's it's always puts it put in such a dire frame i feel like and i guess i guess philosophy personal perspective coming in again um is whatever your beliefs are uh, I, re- I reject the notion that this life is intended just to be suffering just because the only concept of happiness we have is in this chapter of existence people can't claim that they're suffering now if that doesn't mean that they haven't experienced happiness <laughs> i agree yeah so i don't know i guess i guess that's something that that i i, I come at because people people can i feel like in a way oversimplify it by calling this world a cage Mm. Or, or or this world is, is is a prison or is this long test that they that they're just oh boy I can't wait to be done with this well hold on we're all here you're having fun I you I mean maybe not every day people's <laughs> circumstances are different no uh, I I get it I, I think there are a few things to pick up on there it's very plausible that this is the work you put in to earn your keep and the nature of that work is different depending on the circumstances into which you're born and the life chances that you make as a result of that. But each of those things, to me at least, each of those things is their own unique form of test. And as a small example, you can look at the divide between the rich and the poor. The poor person in this allegorical experiment would look at the rich with all their fancy materialistic objects and think life is excruciatingly unfair. And the test for that poor person uh, from an Islamic perspective, and I think this is an example that has somewhat been used in the religious lore, is the idea of not cheating or not 
trying to gain that material wealth through illicit means. But at the same time, from a spiritual perspective, they benefit from not having excess amounts of wealth and materialistic objects because to switch gears, the test of that rich person is going to be how well they spend all of that wealth because the more they do it in self-serving ways, the more they focus on wealth as an end rather than a means to achieve something greater, they themselves are also sinning because, yeah, that's, like that, that's, a, that's an odd way of thinking about it, sure. But the idea that there's this duality of tests within just that little specific example is something that the religion says, that each person's test is different. And you will always look into the other's bond to try and measure your own self-worth in its reflection. But that in itself, that endeavor in itself is a trap. And how well you can avoid that while filling your own pool is perhaps the challenge and the goal of life. First of all, I'm going to say we're going to circle back to this exact example when I invite you onto my Marxist podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, Secondly, I look at that one with, with a bit of struggle the argument of, you know, different people's tests. Because in a lot of ways, uh, I I think this brings up another important thing. It's a lot easier for people of certain socioeconomic status to be a good member of their religion. And I think it's been very much moved in a way to make maybe not always ultra-wealthy people comfortable, but well-off people Mm -hmm. comfortable. It's 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 easy to run out, uh, run a super wealthy person out of religion and say, hey, come on, that's nobody should have that much. But somebody that has a little bit more than the average person, mm-hmm. uh, they're they're probably going to have an easier time being a good. Uh, I mean, but by if if we're going by these rules of what what makes you good, what makes your tests internally, you could say that you've done a better job. But externally, look at. Look at material things, such as educating yourself on your religion. That is a that is a luxury for people that are wealthier. They have access to more resources. They have more time, certainly, uh, usually work schedules that are more convenient. And I would really say the, the education is a big one. You, you know, if you're not educated, it's hard to delve deep into the into your own religious lore. You know, I mean, I'm not saying that you can't. I'm saying it's easier. There's a very direct correlation. It's an important conversation to say, you know, are there there different tests for people with different circumstances? Well, it's also very important to look at, like I said, regardless of your religion, are we going to hold people that come from very difficult circumstances to the same test standards? Because that inherently sets up an an imbalance. And I I think you'll find people all over the spectrum on on whether on how you define what I just said, mm-hmm. um, I think most people would say, "Well, yes, they they will be judged differently," but that's religion. I'm talking about here and now in the context of our own society. How does your neighbor, who makes more money, and is more devout and whatever, um, how is he a better Muslim than you? If you can see all those things that are disconnecting you from achieving those same things that have made him a better. You know, you can't see my air quotes, but a, a better participant of the religion. I don't know. I obviously don't don't know how you, how you you can't you can't nail that down. No human being, I suppose, can be the arbiter of the testing mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. But at the same time, if there is this objective 
like third party in God that is setting everyone's test differently, it raises that natural question of how do humans measure their neighbors' value towards that test? How do they measure their own lack of those things towards that test? And to some degree, yes, each person's test is different and it becomes very important in those specific circumstances. So for example, a poor person born within the fold of Islam, chances are more likely than not will turn out to be Muslim in the core beliefs at least. And intuitively it would make sense if they're judged by the value of those core beliefs they hold rather than the finer nuances that are denied to them as a result of the access barriers. But to the one who is born outside of that fold, how do they actually even go about accessing this knowledge in a world that is designed, especially now more than ever, in a world that is designed to not cater to that form of exploration? Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a question that's very hard to answer, and it's a question that I don't have an answer to. But I think the... I don't want to say that God really interferes in this, but if you've ever had any sort of epiphany where you ask yourself, is this it? Is this everything that is meant to be? I think that question, that critical spark that sets you, that perhaps sets you off on a journey towards that exploration is worth something. I think it has to be worth something because I don't, I can't realistically see any way in which a large segment of that population gets access to that same level of beliefs. And, and maybe to turn the finger around, I think it becomes our responsibility as people who do have access to that knowledge. And that reminds me that from, from a Quranic perspective, those who know have a duty to inform those who do not. And how they perform that duty is also something that they're going to be judged on. Mm -hmm. So I think, I'm not going to say that that's an equalizing mechanism. <laughs> There's probably a lot of other things, small and large, happening at play. But I think the fact that that system also exists is proof that, yeah, just because you have greater access doesn't mean you're automatically better. You have to turn that access into physically meaningful things to help others achieve that. Otherwise, you still fail which is something that a lot of people do not even see uh, or it's an idea that a lot of people don't engage with. Again, going yep. back because they're like, oh, I've done my job. I've safeguarded my belief system. Everything that happens now around the world is somebody else's problem. No, I, I think, and I'm, I'm starting to remember more and more as this conversation goes <laughs> on, but... From a religious perspective, you have a duty to oppose tyranny. From a religious perspective, you have a duty to uplift the community that you're in to the point where the idea of zakat, of giving alms, is one of the core pillars of Islam, i.e. without which you technically can't be classified as Muslim. Okay. So I think the ideas of giving back to your community of 
understanding the needs of the disprivileged of making active steps to correct those are things that go hand in hand with the foundation of the belief system it's just that the way a lot of people have practiced it throughout the years a large result of political and social mm-hmm. social imagination or lack thereof they've divorced <laughs> themselves from their reality and if if i peel back the curtain more as a person in his 20 somethings who has had more life chances who's had more educational opportunities than a lot of people back home at least if not you know just in general i i see those types of conversations within my own community within my own family circles where everybody is content to point fingers at everyone else's shortcomings and they're fully content to be like okay you know we've done our job mm-hmm. no you haven't like you're you really haven't because these things are also going to be something you're judged on how well you behave in your community what struggles do you stand for how do you help your neighbors etc etc are things that are part of your religious fold it's just that you don't want to engage with them because you know that it gives you that peace of mind it's it's a tough one once again it it gives in a territory though of what what is defined and what is not defined i would say here's the catch all this this is the unfortunate reality you don't want to get into an area where you've defined all these things and like i said people are streamlining their religious karma which i think you see people do already in religion but they go well technically i'm good and it's like well if you have to get out the book and talk about technicalities while you're still being a subpar person <laughs> then i would say you you have largely failed in the in, in your quest to be morally good on the other side is i think you have a lot of people say that jesus of the prop people are pat themselves on the back going that's right i i i did what i needed to probably to offer some sort of actionable solution i think you have two opposing mindsets one that it is entirely impossible to even set these rules so why bother the second one being okay the moment you try to define these rules you must then define everything and that is such an exercise to do especially when you have no time in more so I now that split up everything in your life too yeah. like it yeah to to basically break everything down into quantifiable to, yeah it, if i right. if me walking into a 711 has multiple quantifiable <laughs> uh you know karmic sort of situations <laughs> to encounter uh that we've already lost i yeah. can't i <laughs> i'm going to make mistakes in the 711 i will not i will not achieve maximum goodness mm. i think again i th- i think a worthwhile bottle cap on this discussion would be that <laughs> it doesn't the bottom line is not that it it sorry the bottom line is that it doesn't actually matter whether you achieve one or the other i think it's a bit of a misleading thing to actually being even able to achieve it's like perfection there's no such thing right there's only attempts at making them those attempts are the things i think that matter the most good intentioned honest intentioned attempts at improving as best as you can of obviously failing in the endeavor because you're human you're not god worst absolute worst case scenario at the end of the day if you could do nothing else other than try to be better that is points in your favor and that is something that will invariably help um 
small example, and, and I'm not really sure about how factually correct this one is. It's, again, one of those things you hear in oral traditions, not really identifiable extracts. But there's this story of... Actually, now that I think about it, I'm not sure if I want to mention that story. Never mind. Gets <laughs> <laughs> it opens up a whole host of other moral issues in the process. <laughs> but, but yeah, basically, there are examples of category three sins sins where if you've done them you're essentially excommunicated from the religion there there's like no oh, wow. uh you know no possibility of comeback and yet those same verses that promise that holy hellfire and retribution they almost always end with some level of sentence that is oh but god is most merciful and I think that's kind of a the point. You shouldn't actively in, or you shouldn't intentionally go about your days to cause the maximum amount of personal gain at the cost of everyone else. But if you find yourself in that situation through some form of circumstance and to the best of your abilities, you felt short of the of the mark. Getting stuck in that in that space and telling yourself, oh, I've essentially doomed myself, so what does it matter at all anymore? I think avoiding that and still trying to carve your way back is perhaps the most important lesson. Like, if you're a, if you're a quote-unquote religiously good, upright person, it doesn't really matter. You're doing your job. If you're a person who is way at the other end where you just really don't care about the cost that you incur, okay. I mean, it's not my place to say what you should or shouldn't do. Mm -hmm. But if you're somewhere in the middle where you've done bad, but you want to be good, and you're afraid that what you've done essentially means that you can never be good again, then this is perhaps advice for you. That it is your ability, your intention to want to crawl back and try to be better the next day. That is going to be your saving grace. You've been listening to Islam Uncovered, a podcast series that explores the blurred lines of faith, practice, and community in the Muslim world and beyond. My name is Will Patterson. Wasi and I will see you next time when we talk about the nature of revelation and the need for prophethood. <laughs>